Welcome, foolish mortals, to the Goods of Film Podcast. It's spooky season. Spooky month, you might say. And we're here with some fittingly spooky coverage. How are you doing tonight, Dan? Good. Happy Spooktober. I'm, I'm excited. Looking forward to getting chills all, all season long, all month long, I suppose. Um, and I enjoyed what we watched this week. Yes, so what I've brought to the table this time around is kind of channeling our variety of Christmas Carol adaptations that we talked about last December, but this time it's adaptations of Washington Irving's 1820 short story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. What had your exposure been to this story, Dan? Very limited. Uh, Obviously, I was familiar with the image of a man on a horse with a jack-o'-lantern either atop his head or in his hands. I had certainly seen The Headless Horseman before. I don't know if I had ever seen an adaptation or or read the story before. I knew Ichabod Crane was a character, but I did not know exactly his relationship to The Headless Horseman. In fact, in my head, I thought that Ichabod Crane became The Headless Horseman, which, out of all the interpretations, I don't think that's one that I've seen, at least. Yeah, we haven't seen that yet. Maybe there is fertile ground for more. So this was new for me, and and it was kind of cool to really learn the ins and the outs of the story and see it depicted a bunch of different ways. Right, so specifically what we've watched, I assigned the original short story. You could either listen to it or read it. Sounds like, Dan, maybe you did both. Yeah, I first listened to a recording. It was like a full cast audio, which was a little odd because there's the story itself doesn't actually have too much dialogue in it. So mostly the cast was doing like incidental noises in the background, but it was still kind of cool to have like a nice production of it. And then I also read through the text fairly quickly afterwards, but wanted to reseep it in my brain. Cool. So I was first exposed to this story a long time ago, like maybe when I was five or so we rented the Disney version that we're going to be talking about, you know, got the tape from Blockbuster. And my key memory of it is there's a point in the story where characters are telling the tale of the Headless Horseman. And people say they're talking about different kinds of ghosts that haunt the town. And they say, some are fat and some are thin. And then it cuts to this old guy in a chair and he says, and some don't even wear their skin. And his eyes like flash. <laughs> and that just scared the shit out of me. <laughs> like, I think I like shot the tape out of the VCR. <laughs> no more. I'm, I'm stopping watching. This is too much. Tapping out on that one. Yeah. Yep. And so that definitely stuck with me. Uh, but then my next memory of it is an episode of the PBS Kids show Wishbone, which debuted around Halloween 1997. And at that point, I was a little more ready for it. And we'll, we'll talk about that adaptation as well. Definitely had to throw that one into consideration. Then I would say it's a short story that's been pretty well entrenched in American popular culture. So it definitely stuck with me, remained in my mind every October. 
But then the next big milestone in my connection to the story came when James Rolfe, also known as the Angry Video Game Nerd, made a video on his website, Cinemassacre.com, in 2009, where he actually went to Sleepy Hollow, which I didn't realize was a real town, but it's in New York, just like they say in the story, pretty much just north of New York City, kind of in the way that Salem is right outside of Boston. And he just did a location tour, walking around like the big cemetery that's there where Washington Irving is actually buried, and went to the old church that's mentioned in the story that's standing there too. It's like been around since the 1600s, so it was old even by the time the story was written in 1820. And I just thought that was really cool. And it was influential on my decision to make episodes of my TV show, Count Gauntley's Horrors, where I visit horror landmarks. And so in 2014, I did kind of recreate that Sleepy Hollow tour video. Yeah, what were some of the places that you hit in your tour? I know that you I didn't actually get around to watching the clips from your episode like I had hoped to. So you'll have to enlighten me as well as the audience. What are some of the, the highlights? Oh, sure. So it's about a 12 minute video, not too long. Um, but I know that you've had your work cut out for you this episode. And I went to the church. I went to the place where the bridge in the story supposedly was located. And I went through the cemetery. I saw where Washington Irving is buried. And in the cemetery, there's like a recreation of the bridge. Mm. In a supposedly a different spot, but like one that looks like the one in the story would have looked. That's cool. Yeah. So pretty much all the key places. I guess uh, the only place I didn't go is the Van Tassel farm. And as far as I know, that was fictionalized. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, he came just about as close to reality as he could. It seems like there was way more that actually existed than I ever knew. Is is the church a tourist trap these days or is it like a functioning church or community center or something? I believe it's a functioning church. OK, I didn't actually go inside it. I just stood on the steps and by the sign and stuff. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. They did have some touristy stuff, though. They had, like, a big statue of Ichabod being chased, and uh, they had the logo of the Headless Horseman all over the place. There was a Headless Horseman diner. Okay, yeah, that's cool. That sounds like that would be a fun, spooky trip to do. And not too far for us, yeah. It takes just about as long as it takes to get to NYC, so. Okay, yeah. For us, at least, that's, like, reasonable as a special occasion trip. Yeah, manageable. It's like a five-hour drive from Northern Virginia. But yeah, very cool. It's been kind of a big part of my literary life. And in some ways, I think of it as kind of like A Christmas Carol. Do you see any connections, Dan? I do see some. I was thinking about it because you compared it this episode and, and its prep and the way that we are watched a whole bunch of different adaptations to our Christmas Carol episode. I was thinking a little bit about it. And so I was noticing both the similarities and the differences. So I would say similarities are, well, it's tied to a holiday. Although I could have sworn I read through the story and I listened to it. It doesn't say it's on Halloween. It just says it's the fall. Does it ever say it's actually Halloween? No, but we're going to talk about that. Okay. Basically, Halloween didn't exist in 1820. I see. Okay. At least not in America. It kind of was influenced by Irish traditions, but America didn't really have a lot of Irish until 
starting in the 1840s. Interesting. Okay. And it kind of centers around a protagonist who is at a crossroads of some sort and goes through an existential supernatural journey in one night that appears to be an impetus for a life change. And the person themselves is kind of uh, morally ambiguous. I would say Scrooge's arc and place is a lot clearer than Ichabod. One interesting thing about um, Ichabod Crane is, I think, a very ambiguous character in lots of different ways you could depict him, more so than Scrooge. We've seen a lot of different Scrooges, and I think there's a lot of ways to do it, but I think Scrooge's place in the universe is a lot clearer than Ichabod Crane's is. I agree with everything you just said. Yeah, the connections I see are that both A Christmas Carol and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow are stories associated with holidays that prominently feature a large party where it seems like things could go one way or the other for the main character. You know, that basically this is a big turning point in their life at this party. And you've got an incel protagonist who gets terrorized by ghosts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, see, like, if you look at the Disney one, it's not that Ichabod has trouble with the ladies. Oh, true. It's just one specific lady. You're you're correct. We're going to get into that. But I, I agree. They both have troubles with love with the one who got away. Right. And there's less redemption for Ichabod, yeah. certainly. Uh, it would be like if with Christmas Carol, all you got was the first act where he's being mean to everybody in the town and then the ghosts show up and drag him to hell. <laughs> and that's all there was. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to guess exactly what that means. It's interesting. I mean, um, a Christmas Carol is either a short novel or a novella. I've seen it categorized both ways. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is very much a short story. And it's interesting that it's basically one incident. It's like set up and then one incident. And then in, th in that regard, I found it less interesting overall than A Christmas Carol. Because, again, the way that all these different things depict the one night is very interesting. But I found it a little repetitive to do the setup of all of that over and over again. It's just less interesting than most of the things that happened in A Christmas Carol. Where like basically every phase of The Christmas Carol is a really compelling vignette in some way. Yes. I think ultimately there's a lot less flexibility in terms of what you can do with adaptation. So I, I can definitely see that this would get repetitive. So thank you for indulging me. Uh, still, I found everything that we watched interesting. So I hope you did too. Yeah. It's certainly compelling to see the ways that different adaptations interpreted things differently. And almost all of them invented some of their own stuff. And like the stuff that they invented to insert into the story to give it its own texture and its own flavor. I also thought was kind of interesting as a compare and contrast. Yeah, I'm going to enjoy digging through it with you. So I wanted to just kind of give a blow by blow of the classic story. And most of these beats show up in most of the adaptations. As with any case where you're adapting a short story into a longer work, it's more about like what gets added than what gets taken away. Although there are some omissions too. So the story takes place, as I mentioned, in a village called Sleepy Hollow that's just outside of New York, just to the north. Some things I've read call it upstate New York, but 
that's only really in the you know most narrow definition. It's it's not far from the city. Irving tells the story sort of through a proxy. The original book is, I think it's called From the Sketchbook of Jeffrey Cran or something. And it's like each story is inspired by a drawing that this historian named Diedrich Knickerbocker saw. Like he is doing a Brothers Grimm thing where he's like traveling around New York State collecting up all the old folk tales of the Dutch settlers. And so each chapter is some folk tale he claims to have picked up in his travels. So this is the same book that, for instance, Rip Van Winkle comes from. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've read that one with my daughter. That one is short enough that some kids' books just take basically the straight text from Washington Irving. Probably trim it up a little bit, but not much. Mm -hmm. And this tale of Sleepy Hollow says that the town is rumored to be full of ghosts. It's a place where not a lot happens. It's pretty insular. And all the old Dutch folks in the town have a lot of legends about ghouls and goblins. They say there's a bewitching influence to the air. And early on, our protagonist shows up, a guy named Ichabod Crane. We've name-dropped him a couple times here. Who is pretty much described as a goofy-looking dude. He's from Connecticut, where he probably went to Yale. He's very educated, as opposed to the farming community that he has just traveled to. So one thing that I think we've alluded to here, I don't know if we've said explicitly, this was released in the early 1800s. So we're talking like 50 years from the founding of the United States of America. So it's pretty old. It's quite old, in fact. And it is still quite readable. There are some things, though, that got lost, I think, at least a little bit to me. Not too much. But as I was reading, I was like, oh, hold on. I think he's being funny. I think he's making fun of Ichabod Crane and how much of a goober he is. And I kind of gradually caught on to that. One interesting thing overall about this story that I think we can talk about is how the tone of this story changes quite a bit as for a short story. Like I honestly read basically the first two thirds as like a comedy of manners, basically like, or if you were to put it in modern terms, it reminded me of like a animal house, an animal house esque college comedy where you have the geeks versus the jocks. And the geeks are all like ridiculous stereotypes and the jocks are all like these boneheads who drink too much beer and how they're competing for the one hot girl on campus. Like I very much got that vibe as we got deeper into the uh, the story here. But just the reason I bring it up here is because I completely agree that Irving goes out of his way to like talk about how big Ichabod Crane's noses a whole bunch of times and how like when he talked it was nasally and he had it looked it was so big it looked like a weather vane and, and stuff like that I was like okay he's a goober got it I'm, I'm here yeah this whole thing is kind of an extended virgin versus chad meme so Ichabod's college education sort of elevates him above the quote-unquote country bumpkins who make up the majority of the town's population and it gives him a role in the community that he's happy to exploit. 
because he's come to town to work as the schoolmaster. He's got like a one room old school schoolhouse. And so he's going to educate the children of the town. We learn two things about his personality. One is that he's really into the supernatural. So he's very much prone to these superstitious beliefs that hold sway in the area. Says that he has like studied Cotton Mather's book of witchcraft and stuff. And then the other thing we learn about him is that he has a really big appetite. He loves to eat. This was another moment where I was thinking of like classic when I say classic, I mean like 1970s and 1980s sitcoms and comedies where there's always the one character where one of their personality traits is they're always hungry. They always want to be eating. Uh, I guess it goes back 200 years. Yeah, I am always surprised how modern a lot of the humor seems. Maybe not all the verbiage, but I find it very funny. Yeah. It says that he has the dilating powers of an anaconda. (laughs) So like you can imagine him unhinging his jaw and he's able to procure this food for himself, not by purchasing it, but apparently it's custom in those days for the school teacher to go around staying like a week at a time in the homes of his pupils. So he leads kind of an itinerant life going from dwelling to dwelling. Uh, You might say mooching. Something that we're going to get into as we look at these different adaptations is how much of an asshole is Ichabod in each one? (laughs) And it's kind of a sliding scale. I mean, he has strengths in this original story. Like, he has a role that he plays in the town. But uh, he's he's, certainly, he's got his own self-interest in mind. It's a sliding scale of Ichabod villainy. Yeah. Exactly. Because one thing he's got going for him is he is musically talented. And so he offers singing lessons in the town. He, like, leads the church choir. This really called to mind, this time around, the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T for me. Because you've got the character who is a music teacher, and he uses this to kind of gain intimate access to the town's women in their homes. He starts going around offering singing lessons, and this lets him get close to the local females. Oh, interesting. I like that connection. And uh, many of the women are said to be taken, as Dan mentioned, with Ichabod's erudite nature. You know, he's the educated, cultured man. Uh, He's not a good old boy. He's not a He's not a farmer. And as we'll see, we're going to soon have an August Zavlodowski, if you will. (laughs) A more rustic, manly man. Because in short order, Ichabod meets Katrina Van Tassel, who is not only the most beautiful girl in town, but also the sole heir to the largest estate in town. So we were talking in our Max Magician episode about the medieval definition of marriage and a big part of it is what land are you going to get when you (laughs) wed right uh if you think about uh, monty python and the holy grail this is the girl with huge tracts of land (laughs) yeah i was trying to gather how much if, if he was just joking about how beautiful she was because really she just was rich and that was what was beautiful about her 
But it did seem like she, she was at least supposed to be genuinely an attractive young woman. Yeah, I think it's both. So now the peace of Ichabod's mind is at an end, is the phrase in the story. And I really like that wording. Because now he's only got one thing on his mind. He's got to figure out a way to insinuate himself into Katrina's good graces and hopefully end up in control of this big farm. Because as a teacher, he doesn't make a lot of money. It's like, I I can kind of relate to this too. (laughs) But of course, everybody else in town is also interested in Katrina. All the men with something to prove. And his biggest rival in the chase is a dude named Abraham Van Brunt, nicknamed Brom Bones. So who is Brom Bones, Dan? He, he's also somewhat ambiguous as a character. He's ostensibly the antagonist, and he will be a very important and perhaps controversial part of the conclusion of this story. But he is the other competitor for Katrina, at least the main other competitor, the one who kind of the counterpoint to everything that Ichabod is. And he is a local. You use the phrase good old boy, and I think that's a good one to describe Brom. He likes a drink. He's a charmer, though. And he's got his sights on Katrina. And I think there is some ambiguity in the writing of the short story as to what extent Katrina and Brom have pre-existing or pre-established either relationship or chemistry. I think there are ways to read between the lines that either they were together all the, all along or perhaps destined for each other all along. But um, certainly his main role in the story here is kind of the main competitor to Ichabod. In some ways, Ichabod gets the one up on him. And then in other ways, Brahm figures out how to ultimately get a, a big one up on Ichabod. I mean, again, the extent of that and his exact role in it is debatable. Yeah, we'll be talking about that a lot in our episode. Yeah, we've got this rivalry that ensues with Ichabod and Brom seeming to be at the front of the pack. And yeah, it's unclear to what degree maybe Katrina is leading Ichabod on. And maybe the whole thing is meant to just build Brom's frustration and ardor. Do away with any degree of cold feet he might have. But Katrina's parents, at least in the short story, seem fond enough of Ichabod. And so he's hanging around getting a lot of intimate access, sparking, courting in the old terms of the day. And he gets to a place where he's firmly envisioning himself as the future master of this estate. He's having like daydreams of how he's going to cook and eat all the animals that he sees as he walks around the farm. That little bit of him imagining eating the food recurs in several of the adaptations. And I was glad that that was a beat that, that they always stuck around, because that was a funny one. Now we come to our pivotal party. Because at the end of the harvest season, Ichabod and Brom both get invited to this big shindig at the Van Tassel house. And of course, they both take it as like a personal invitation from Katrina. In some adaptations, Katrina like writes a special note on their invitations. And so Ichabod gets all gussied up. He dismisses all his students early. Get out. I need to get ready. And he borrows a horse for the occasion. Gunpowder. 
Yeah, good name for a horse. They both have good horse names because Brahms is named Daredevil. And again, often in adaptations, this is specifically called a Halloween party and you get like carved pumpkins and stuff. Very anachronistic, although it makes it good for spooky season. But uh, in the day, in like a Dutch community, you probably wouldn't see these things. They, they didn't have Halloween yet. It's more of a modern invention. But there's some good autumn environmental descriptions in the story. It's very much you're in thrust into what is very recognizably a mid-Atlantic fall here. Oh, absolutely. He has really good descriptions. He makes you want to be there. <laughs> Just like Tolkien. That's right. I feel like at some point our references are going to like collapse in on themselves and nobody's going to know what we're talking about except us. Oh, I don't care. Like every, everything we'll say will be some reference to a previous episode. I want to reach the singularity. Like I'm wondering if somebody were to listen to this, even someone who listens to most of our episodes, if they would have recognized like the six times that we referred to, to something from a previous episode already. I'll give a little more context for our wishbone discussion. I won't rely on them having heard a previous episode. Beyond <laughs> that, I make no promises. <laughs> so now we're at the party. And yes, great descriptions. The food sounds delicious. I want to go to there. And Ichabod does dance with Katrina for most of the night. It sounds like he's a good dancer, or at least an enthusiastic dancer. We get a few different reads on that in the movies that we watched. But Brahm is sitting off by himself on the sidelines grousing. And at least in the short story, they make it pretty clear that Ichabod is going to use this big night to like pop the question to Katrina or something. He wants to have a tete-a-tete with her after the party. But as the night goes along, he gets distracted because the villagers are telling ghost stories. They're talking about all the scary things that go bump in the night in the area. And so talk turns to the tale of the Headless Horseman. And usually it's Brom who either turns things around to the topic or at least jumps in with a story of his own about confronting the Headless Horseman out in the woods. So if you know anything about this story... It's who the Headless Horseman is. You've probably got a picture in your head of what he looks like. Uh, but the story goes that he was a Hessian soldier. So a German mercenary fighting on the side of the British who got his head blown off by a cannonball and so was buried kind of unceremoniously in an American cemetery because that's where the body was. And so supposedly he comes up out of the grave each night riding around trying to find an unwary traveler and take their head for his own so he can finally rest. Something along those lines. Interestingly, I, it's a pretty even split across the adaptations and sometimes within a single adaptation, whether it's pronounced Hessian or Hessian. I've always read that as Hessian, but I don't know. Yeah, I'd say at least in modern times, I've heard a lot of people say Hessian, but I, I don't really see a problem with either way you want to say it. Sure. I'm not going to hold it against you. <laughs> and something that Brahm adds to his story is that 
apparently there's a bridge in town out in the woods that if you get to the other side of the bridge, the horsemen can't follow you. This may grow out of, like, vampire legends where they can't cross running water. Hmm. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. But it's like, get across the bridge and you're safe. Eventually, the party breaks up for the night and people are heading home. And in the original short story, there's mention that Ichabod does go to Katrina and say whatever he has to say to her. Maybe propose. Certainly try to progress things in the relationship. And that Katrina shoots him down. Maybe telling him point blank that she was just using him to get Brom interested. Although we don't know, because Irving is very coy. I thought that was really intriguing and just surprising, I guess. Just how vague he leaves. Like, what are ostensibly pivotal moments of this story? I mean, the exact outcome of what this is all leading to is obviously, left, as we will see, left very vague and ambiguous. But the fact that, like, all of this story thus far had led to this proposal and it happens off stage. And not only does it happen off stage, but we're like not told exactly what went down. We're just said, oh, it put Ichabod in a bad mood, whatever it was. I forget what the exact phrasing is. I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it says he leaves chap fallen. <laughs> I like that chap fallen. So he's not feeling too good. So something went south, but we're hearing this, remember, secondhand. This is something that the the folklorist collected from villagers who if this really happened just between Ichabod and Katrina maybe nobody's got the full answer and honestly it goes by so quick in the story that I didn't even remember it the first time I heard the story and maybe because of that it doesn't show up in a lot of adaptations but now it's time for Ichabod to head home and in all adaptations he's spooked by the stories that he's heard uh, in the original short story, it also sounds like he's heartbroken. But he's got to ride home on his borrowed horse through the woods at midnight or something. It's late and it's dark and there's no electric light. And we get some really good tension built up as he's riding slowly through the woods and his mind starts playing tricks. And every shadow and sound that he's encountering become monstrous in his mind. I thought the Disney adaptation did a good job of depicting this. Yeah, I thought that did the best job of the build-up to the sighting that we're about to get to. But that is kind of a, a important part of it because like, one theme is how much of it, of what's happening here is in his head. That he's frightened and spooked and imagining all these things that could be something worse than they are as he's doing this ride home. Which is like, I don't know if it, it must say it in the story. I forget what the wording is because it's like consistent across all the adaptations. But this is past Ichabod's bedtime. He's he's out after when he feels comfortable being out. And if you've ever had a situation where you're out at like a weird hour and late in the night, like, I don't know, I've come home from things at 4 a.m. a couple of times and it's just surreal. And it's like, I don't even feel like I'm in the same world that I'm normally in. And Compounding that with the spookiness of being in a woods in when there's like not streetlights and stuff. I think I can imagine the psychological component of this for sure. 
Absolutely. This part of the story is super relatable. Irving describes it really well. And I think this part is the reason that the legend has persisted in our memory. It's the reason that people still tell the story. Because all of us has walked home alone through the woods at some point by yourself. But suddenly Ichabod turns a corner and there's the Headless Horseman. It's like the worst possible thing he was thinking was going to happen. And here it is. The Headless Horseman chases after him through the woods. Eventually they get to that bridge that was mentioned. And Ichabod does get across it. So he has a moment where he can breathe a sigh of relief. But, oh no. The Horseman doesn't vanish. Although it doesn't sound like he crosses the bridge really either. So maybe there's some truth to it. But he does throw his head at Ichabod, usually represented as a pumpkin, a jack-o'-lantern. And it connects with his cranium at fearful speed. And then, you know, fade to black. Everything goes black. And we jump ahead to the next morning. Or maybe even a few days later. Because it, t it takes a while for the townsfolk to, like, register that Ichabod is missing and care. But eventually they do find his hat out in the woods next to a smashed pumpkin. One bit of detail that I think is important, especially as you try to make some interpretation of the ending. I was listening carefully, and I'm pretty sure it never describes the writer who is frequently called a goblin in the, these couple of paragraphs here. So the, the headless horseman is a goblin, I guess as like a kind of an old term for a generic big spooky thingy, but he it's, he's not shown as having a pumpkin that it's his head. It's like described as his head that he's holding. And then, then he throws his head at Ichabod and then it's the next morning that they see a pumpkin there. And so it's a there's a phrase you've used a couple times uh, when you see one thing and then you see another thing and you make the cinematic connection that those two are connected. But I think that is what Irving is playing at here is like getting us to wonder, well, was that pumpkin in fact the head? Was the head not really a head at all? I think that's very astute because whenever Ichabod sees it during the chase, he thinks it's a head. We're told it's a head. Although, reasonable doubt, devil's advocate, the stories all say that the headless horseman is looking for his head and that once he finds his head, he can rest. So if he's got an actual head there, his work is done. He's got nothing to do. Which is why I think maybe it's reasonable for him to carry around a pumpkin substitute. Okay. It's like a surrogate, like a teddy bear. Interesting. But, no, I think you're totally right. This is more of like a counterfactual for me. Something to play nice with the adaptations that we see. Though I think you make a very good point. That's an interesting point about the legend itself. Saying he needs to get ahead. He needs to possess a head of his own. But... If, he, if he's got enough heads that he can spare a head to throw at somebody is like ammo, then he probably isn't in need of a head. He's, he's got head. Got a head. 
<laughs> He's got all the head he wants. <laughs> no, I mean, if you believe Tim Burton, he may have a lot of heads. That's a good point. But now we get like a little epilogue. And we find out that pretty soon after the story unfolds and Ichabod is gone, Brom does get married to Katrina. And in a lot of the adaptations, as well as a bit in the original short story, there's varying degrees of implication that Brom himself, in a disguise, was the Headless Horseman. I think the wording in the short story is that he looks exceedingly knowing whenever the story is brought up. And people are speculating, oh, remember that weird school teacher? Whatever happened to that guy? Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. When I read it, I didn't think Irving left much ambiguity. And also, Irving goes out of his way to previously... Well, I say Irving, but I know that it's layers because it's not actually Irving telling the story. Right, it's Diedrich Knickerbocker. Right, Irving as a persona telling a story. But this persona goes out of his way to call Brahm an excellent writer previously, setting up incentive for him to want to spook and mess with Ichabod. And then the thing, the supernatural thing that Ichabod thinks he's seen, we're given an out on what that supernatural thing is. And then the whole end of the story is like, well, Brahm seemed to know a little more than everyone else about this. I wonder what he possibly could have known if he could have had any role in all of it. And it goes even farther than that when it's talking about what actually happened to Ichabod. Right, but it does give an out, as you say, for other interpretations, where he says that in the years that follow, a few different rumors persist about Ichabod's fate. And some people say, oh, I saw him a few towns down the road. He's married and went to law school and probably still mooching off people in some fashion. But then, you know, the last line is something about how, but the old Dutch wives who are the best judges of this matter still contend that he was spirited away by the headless horseman. And I think you're right that if you look at it with a critical eye, he's definitely trying to nudge you towards it was Brahm all along. And really nothing supernatural was happening. But without the possibility that there is something supernatural, I don't think people would still care about this story. Yeah, I think that's fair. I definitely think that the fact that it doesn't, it's not a Scooby-Doo pull off the mask and it's Brahm, that it leaves it open to interpretation, or at least somewhat interpretation. I, I think that that definitely is intentional in the design of the story and carries and Basically, every adaptation we see and is a big part of the appeal. Right. I think we still want there to be ghosts and goblins on Halloween, and maybe we're all just foolish townsfolk. But I think that is central to the appeal that has endured. Faith, sir, replied the storyteller. As to that matter, I don't believe one half of it myself. That's the last line of the postscript. I like it. I don't even think I noticed a postscript. You've, you've done your homework. <laughs> so we've got some key themes in this story that pop up in our different adaptations. We do want to keep things moving along, but obviously there's superstition and the role that it plays in our day-to-day lives. We've got some different competing models for masculinity. 
You know, that's a theme that appeals to me. It comes up in Dr. T, comes up in the Iron Giant. It's a little bit of a class romance, too. I mean, at least you kind of had the poor guys pining for the rich girl. It doesn't have quite the same richness as my favorite versions of those, but that's at least a little bit of a factor. Oh, good call. Class and economics are very important. Also, autumn, harvesting, pretty important here. It's a farming community, so very tied to the land and the crops you grow there. Also, there's a vein of, like, anti-intellectualism or just fear of the outsider. I think nowadays when people have cars, maybe the distinction between New England and New York or what was once called New Amsterdam is pretty invisible. It's an indistinguishable line. But the fact that Ichabod is not a Dutchman, I think, is important. Yeah, his the way he's described and that Irving goes out of his way to just really make him sound like as much of a goober as possible made me wonder if this was like a racial caricature for some racist thing that I don't know about because it either doesn't exist anymore or isn't something that is caricatured anymore. But him being tall and like distinctly lanky with long arms, big nose and big ears. I was wondering if that was a thing. I did read somewhere that said that Ichabod is a Hebrew word. Hmm. So I don't know. There might be something to that. Although I think he's supposed to be like an English settler and they're Dutch settlers. So, yeah, I mean, that's not confirmation one way or the other, but it is interesting. I mean, during our Christmas Carol episode, you mentioned that Ebenezer was Hebrew. That's true. Yeah. I didn't think about that from that angle, but I can see that there's, I don't want to read too much into it. There are elements (laughs) of the depiction of Ichabod that you could construe as caricature. For sure. And so that's the broad plot. And the adaptations are varying degrees of faithful to that. I'd say the Burton version from 1999 is the one that deviates most significantly. But uh, broadly, you know the story now. Uh, I did want to throw in some specific notes about each version that we watched. uh, Because we haven't really told you what what all we watched yet. Uh, I mentioned that we've got the Disney version which is from 1949. We've got the Wishbone version from 1997. We are going to discuss Tim Burton's movie Sleepy Hollow from 1999. And then we'll see whether we had anything else. And the original short story, of course. One thing I want to keep consistent in our discussion is something I've termed the barometer. And this is how heavily implied it is in a given version that Brahm is the horseman. I like that. Okay, are you on board? Yeah, no, I like the barometer. Good. So, as you said, in the original story, the barometer, we've got a pretty good suggestion that it was Brahm. We call it an 8.5 out of 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks exceedingly knowing, they say. And um, I just wanted to quickly, before we talk about specific versions give a little insight on how my view of Ichabod has evolved over the years. So I would say that for a long time, I identified pretty closely with Ichabod. Interesting. Uh, And part of this is they set him up as the protagonist. So I think it's instinctive that you try to see things from the protagonist's point of view. For sure. I still think the story does a good job conveying his thought processes and making his decisions understandable. But with time... I can definitely see that they describe him as 
pretty slimy and selfish. Everything he does is self-serving. Right. It's interesting because, like you said, it's framed from his perspective that we would root for him. And, like, also thinking about the modern kind of archetype of who's the hero, it makes you think that Ichabod's going to be the the quote-unquote nice guy, the guy with the heart of gold, but ultimately the one who's right for the girl. But he's really not. He's got elements of that, but, like, he's definitely, you're right, self-serving. Like, he wants Katrina in part because she's pretty and also in part because she's rich, but neither of those from, like, what you would normally think of as Oh, he's the one that truly gets her and the one who truly cares for her and stuff. No, he just wants to be the guy who gets the farm. That's that's what it is. Yeah, he he wants to eat her chickens. He wants <laughs> he just wants to like have bushels of fruit and ride around on a nice horse. But how we see Ichabod also depends on how Brom is depicted. And I thought that might have been the biggest variable in the different versions we considered. What did you think? Like It's like sometimes he's a more of a brute and other times less of one. Yeah, I think that's fair for sure. He's never heroic, I would say. At least never strictly heroic. Where you're saying, oh, Brahm's actually the good guy. The guy that we should be rooting for all along. He's always got a little bit of bully in him and a little bit of rejection of the outsider, assuming that he's going to be the one who gets the girl. But also, he's not necessarily a bad guy in in all of them. And I think reading the text, I was listening for how villainous I should view Brom. And I think the answer is not clear. He's not strictly depicted as a bad guy, and he's not strictly depicted as a good guy in the story. Yeah, they say that he's a prankster, but that he has a lot of friends and is well regarded by the community. Right. So he's a lot like Gaston. He's a very Gaston character that's interesting i'm gonna have to think about that one and uh my last thing to say about the original short story is i find the humor to feel surprisingly modern yeah uh you've got like asides from the author to the reader and pretty complex characterizations a lot of things are are vague but hinted at what did you think experiencing this short story for the first time i liked it i thought it was enjoyable It just gave you a lot of rich detail of the setting, a lot of ambiguity in the character and, but a ways to kind of imagine it without like explicitly telling us what to feel and some good settings and some good details that kind of put you in its place. One thing, this is just like a totally random aside that I thought of as I was listening to it. There is a character who's semi-important in the story but who is not often depicted in the movies or in the, the, the various adaptations. And this is, I think, his main role is he's like the houser and supporter of Crane, although there's also the thing where Crane goes from house to house, so I'm not sure. Yeah, you're talking about Hans von Ripper. Exactly, yeah. Who lends the horse in the story. I was not expecting to see him in any adaptations, but we have a surprise in store, listeners. But with the name Hans von Ripper, how could he not be the villain? That's like the perfect villain name. You got Hans and then von Ripper is just a great, great thing to append to make sure that we all know that this guy's the bad guy, except he's not actually the bad guy. So my secret theory is that Hans von Ripper is actually the Headless Horseman. 
either he's in cahoots with Brom or it was just entirely coincidental that he was out as the horseman that night. Yeah. Something. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to construct a whole alternate theory with Hans von Ripper. My theory is maybe Hans von Ripper is an ancestor of Eric von Zipper. Oh man, from the the beach party. <laughs> exactly. It got changed over time. Gradually, someone had a lisp and the R turned to a Z. You know, it, it branched, yeah. It's like a different wing of the family. Okay, I like this, yeah. Um, I wanted to give just kind of a quick blow-by-blow blow of the, the different versions we watched, tell you a little bit about what our experiences was watching them. And so the order that I watched them in, Dan, and maybe you did the same, I watched Disney Wishbone Burton. Same here, yeah. Okay. And that's chronological. So the Disney version was a segment in the 1949 film, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. So if you're big into Disney history, like Dan and I are, you may know that a lot of the movies that Disney put out in the 1940s were what was called package films. Anthologies of shorter segments, because apparently this was cheaper I don't really know how that works. It seems like it would be cheaper to do, like, design one set of character models and, like, one set of backgrounds and have that go on a little longer rather than make multiple sets of characters and and multiple stories. But I guess the thing is that then you can um, delegate. You can have multiple people working on short segments simultaneously. That's interesting, yeah. I. I haven't really dug into it, but that's the explanation I've always seen is that it's cheaper to do package films where it's basically like a bunch of shorts in or in this case, just two shorts. Although I read somewhere that the initial plan was to have it be three shorts and three different holidays, but I don't know what the other short would have been in, in this one, but I'll, I'll let you describe what we actually ended up with here. Right. So... It takes place in a library. We get a kind of lackluster framing device where it's just a bookshelf. And we get a segment based around Mr. Toad from Wind in the Willows. And that section of the film is narrated by English actor Basil Rathbone, who was most famous for a series of films where he played Sherlock Holmes. And that focuses a lot on Christmas. There's like things that take place at Christmas and New Year's in the events of the story, which I don't remember from the book. Maybe it's in there. I haven't read Wind in the Willows, so I don't have any comment on that, except that I feel like what was depicted there was not the full novel. It was just like a segment of the novel. Oh, yeah, it's very condensed. It's like Mr. Toad likes to pursue fads and he gets in... A conflict because he wants to own a car it's like it's the early 1900s and so the things that rich eccentrics have are motor cars but the meat of the matter what we want to talk about is the second segment which you know pivots to the other side of the library and narrator bing crosby says oh yeah you english have a lot of great stories but don't forget the colonies because we have tales too. And then crooner Bing Crosby tells us the story of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And previously I had seen both of these segments independently, which is like how they were released on home video. 
And honestly, I think it makes a lot more sense to distribute them that way. <laughs> what did you think of this uh, presentation as a whole, Ichabod and Mr. Toad? So thinking just about the links, the tendons between these two stories, it's quite weak. I mean, I guess the link is that they're both adaptations and it's got this English literature versus American literature theme. And it does actually lean into the American, oh, we got our own American way of doing things bit for the Legend of Sleepy Hollow bit. In fact, I want to talk a little bit about that because I think it was very off-putting, maybe not off-putting, it was very striking to me how much of the tone fluctuates in the animated Mr. Ichabod I don't know what it's actually titled as if it's just Sleepy Hollow or The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is what the short story is, the segment. But it opens with Bing Crosby gives that monologue that you mentioned. And then all of a sudden, like he's singing a 1940s upbeat jazz tune about Ichabod Crane and Sleepy Hollow. And for like what I was expecting, like a kind of a horror story, it's just a very odd opening that doesn't really match the tone of a horror story. It's like just a dude singing his his happy song about how there's this weird guy named Ichabod before it pivots to its more slapsticky humor cadence. I don't know, but it, it is interesting as kind of an overall package. I mean, I think the animation is quite good and consistent across both of them, but it is just a package film that is very, very vaguely connected, very loosely connected. Yeah, I think the tone overall is is pretty strange and fluid because it ends with Ichabod being chased off by the Headless Horseman, who is legitimately frightening. And then narrator Bing Crosby says, I'm getting out of here. And the film just ends. Yeah. Like, there's no pontification on what we've seen. No message about what we're supposed to go away with. No... You know, Basil Rathbone and Bing Crosby don't shake hands or something. It's just over. <laughs> it was odd indeed. And I think it's noteworthy that, like, the way that it depicts the Brahm versus Ichabod rivalry for Katrina is, like, imagine a Looney Tunes short. I'm thinking, like, Tom and Jerry style or something where, like, they're constantly one-upping each other. But in, like, goofy slapstick gags where, like, He'll wind up his punch to punch him, but the other guy's moved out of the way, so he gets his fist stuck in a tree. And I don't know, just like, not what I would think of as an adaptation of classic literature with like this very physical sense of humor in the story, for the first two thirds at least. One clip I wanted to send you but didn't find online anymore is from a series called DTV that was on the Disney channel in the super early days, like 1984 and 85, where they would do music videos using classic Disney footage to sort of parody MTV. And there's a video clip that uses this segment of the kind of Looney Tunes rivalry between Brahm and Ichabod set to the tune, my boyfriend's back. That's funny. I would like to see that. My boyfriend's back and you're gonna be in trouble. Oh, hey. no, Nina, my boyfriend's back. <laughs> I know you like it when we sing. Wanted to bring that to bear. It's a great song. Uh, but overall, I like this Disney Sleepy Hollow segment. I think it does a pretty good job of capturing the story. Um, maybe slapstick aside. 
but it, it hits all the key points and it tells it concisely. I agree. I think overall it is strong. I think the dance segment at the party, I think it has the strongest party segment out of any of the adaptations we saw. One thing we talked about when we talked about Christmas Carol is that the party segment typically is like very energetic and fun and like does a good job of making you want to actually be at that party. And I actually felt that was a mixed bag in the adaptations we saw. But this party I did want to be at. I thought it had the, the good music. I thought it had good dancing. And I would I would be at that party. It was good setup for what was about to come. Yeah. And Dan mentioned the Ichabod song at the start, which is pretty forgettable. There's also a Katrina song. And both of those to me are kind of meh. But then when we get to the party, Brom Bones sings his story of the Headless Horseman. And I like that song. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's spooky. And he gets into it. Also kind of interesting that because he's the narrator, Bing Crosby ends up voicing both Ichabod and Brom. Huh. It's like the duality of man, the duality of Bing. Exactly. <laughs> good episode title. <laughs> Maybe. there's. We're going to be talking about more than just Bing, but I like the duality of Bing. And so where do you fall on the barometer for the Disney version, Dan? That's a pretty good question. I'm trying to remember specifically how it goes. Um, I think you probably have better notes than I do on this. Well, I think it doesn't go further than just Brahm is the one who builds it up, if I recall correctly. Like, we don't get other circumstantial hints that it was Brahm all along. Yeah, he's the one who tells the story at the party and seems really intent on spooking Ichabod. And he has a similar looking horse. We see him riding around on a black horse. Gotcha. So it's inconclusive, but I think there's still an implication. Maybe not as heavy as the short story. So you gave the short story, I think, an 8.5. So if you wanted to put a number value on this for our barometer, what would you say? Uh, five. Okay. What do you think? Yeah, sounds, sounds reasonable. I think I'm about there too. I, I just want to also praise one more time. That spooky section, it's like the last five minutes basically of the story maybe just a minute or two longer than the last five minutes is really phenomenal and like legitimately frightening for what had been very goofy up until then. Very, a lot of atmospheric creepy details. Oh yeah. And like pulling out the stops on the spooky colors and images and stuff. I, I dug it. I love it. I, I love the color palette in this thing as a whole, like the autumn colors in the first segment. And then when everything turns black and purple and orange in the mm -hmm. scary chase scene. That's great. The next version I want us to consider is the season premiere of the second season of Wishbone from PBS Kids. It's called, well, the, the title card just says The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But for some reason, the VHS release got called Halloween Hound, The Legend of Creepy Collars, <laughs> which is pretty weak. It's a stretch. Yeah, they, they almost had something there. They got halfway there. They're like, this has some of the shapes and sound of words that we would associate with this story, but it doesn't quite get there. But to revisit what Wishbone is... It's a little complicated. You kind of have to see it to get it. But it's got a frame story that takes place in an American suburb in the 90s where there's a kid named Joe Talbot and his friends. And Joe has a dog who's a Jack Russell Terrier named Wishbone. 
And every episode, Joe will find himself involved in some archetypical grade school conflict. You know, there's a bully character, or they gotta collect food for the food bank. And we've got, you know, a, a small town cast of recurring characters. And one of these episode of the week conflicts will come up and then wishbone will relate that storyline to some classic work of literature because we can hear the dog's thoughts there's a, a narrator who voices voices wishbone an actor name of larry brantley who voices wishbone's inner monologue uh, the dog itself was played by soccer the jack russell terrier Great name for a dog. I don't actually really want to have a pet dog. I feel like the challenges of owning a dog would surpass the personal value I would get out of it. Maybe not. I did like having a dog when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't know. This is a this is a point of contention. A <laughs> bone to pick, you might say. Uh, Dan comes down harsh on having pets. I mean, you've got kids. They're, <laughs> kids have got to be way more work than a dog, and a dog loves you, like, no matter what. Well, but in, in 20 years, I'm going to have to have grieved the death of the dog. And like just when the dog would die, that's when the kids become interesting full people. So I guess that's true. But you can get another dog and people aren't going to judge you. I if, suppose. If the kid dies and you just get another one, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, no, but anyways... The point I'm coming at is I like names for dogs and I like soccer. That's it's my kind of name where it's not a name you would expect, but it's a word, you know, like one of my all time favorite dog names is the dog who was with the French kids when they discovered that ancient cave painting. I don't know if you ever heard that story, Brian, but like these these French kids were wandering and they found a cave that had ancient paintings and they had a dog with them and they like stood guard on it because they realized it was like an ancient work of art and didn't trust people to actually maintain it and treat it with respect. So they did so themselves. It's a cool story. The point of it is they had a dog and the dog's name was Robot. And I was like, that's a great name for a dog. And also why was in France was that the name for a dog? But I'm in on it. Soccer is a good name for a dog, too. I'm there. I like that story. I hadn't heard that before. But yeah, soccer, it conveys the Jack Russell Terrier color scheme. You know, it's white with black spots. That's true. You know, not like a Dalmatian. It's like white and brown and dark mm -hmm. dappled. And Wishbone's kind of calling card is he has spots in the shape of a paw on his ear. One more thing on the basic framing of Wishbone. As you mentioned, typical grade school conflicts. I hadn't seen an episode of Wishbone since I was a kid before this week. I was very surprised to find the main character to be like a 16-year-old boy, not like an 8-year-old boy. So I have something about that. Okay. So context, the first season of Wishbone was made in 1995, and they made 40 episodes. And then they showed those episodes in reruns just all throughout that year and the coming years. And then in 1997, they made a second season and that was just 10 episodes. And so the whole intervening time I was, you know, five years old and then six and then seven 
watching reruns of the first year, but because they made so many episodes, I didn't notice anything different. And then, Halloween 1997, I'm carving my pumpkin, and they announce new Wishbone. And I was super hyped. And then Joe is way older. <laughs> like, I guess only two years, but it is very noticeable. Yeah, full full throttle puberty for those two years. That's right. They basically look like high schoolers. They probably were high schoolers. But I, I guess they're supposed to be like 12 or something. Like they went from 10 to 12. I don't know. They look old. You are absolutely right. Uh, and the second season was much shorter. It was only a quarter as many episodes. So not really representative of the show as a whole. But I like this episode because Wishbone will recognize the suburban American conflict and relate it to a work of literature. And then we will see a reenactment of that work of literature with people in full period costumes acting against a dog who obviously can't talk other than voiceover. So kudos for the acting job. But the featured work of literature in this Halloween special is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Also notable that this is a two-part episode, so a full hour devoted to a short story. When there are other episodes where they take like a thousand-page book like Don Quixote or The Count of Monte Cristo and they'll do it in a half hour. I was wondering about that because... I couldn't remember how long the normal episode was, and this even still felt rushed. And I was like, do they do this length for full novels? But they don't do they do shorter than this. They do half of this. And you gotta have two stories. You gotta have suburban Joe Talbot story, and then all the actors in their theatrical garb. That means each segment of the adaptation component, the historical novel component. In some of those cases, it's like 300 pages for a two-minute clip. I don't know. You're right. It's it's super abridged, but I always found it really interesting. It's a cool concept for sure. And I like that they didn't really dumb it down for kids. I always remembered that. There would be ones where I'd be like, I feel like I'm not getting this fully. And maybe I will later at some point fully get this. Definitely yeah. had that sensation. I still get Jeopardy questions that I learned the answer on Wishbone. Nice. Especially if there's ever like a Shakespeare category. Mm. But yeah, it's like, you know, in the Frankenstein episode, he resurrects a corpse. And in the Tale of Two Cities episode, somebody gets guillotined. Wow. I mean, they don't show the head coming off, but they show how the machine works by like chopping up cabbages. And then he's like, well, got to stick my head in that thing. <laughs> and uh, then there's one uh, where they did Faust and he sells his soul to the devil. And so... This is not Barney. <laughs> they haven't kidified it, right? Right. So just quickly, the Oakdale story, which is the town that Joe and his friends live in for this one, is there's going to be a Halloween scavenger hunt. And at least part of the hunt involves this house where Joe and his best friend David had gotten spooked when they tried trick-or-treating there when they were younger kids. You know, before the time jump. And so Joe is going to have to face his fears. And also there's like an undercurrent that he has like lucky charms and stuff. Because he plays basketball and he's got to have his lucky socks or whatever. So he's superstitious. Of course, Wishbone says, oh, well, I remember 
a character who was superstitious and had to face his fears. And that's our segue into Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, I liked the suburban story here. Mostly I liked the details of suburbia from the 90s. Cool sweatshirts and turtlenecks and jeans and basic spooky stuff from the 90s. But also like this story that it gets built around is actually like gets sent on this like scavenger hunt thing that I thought I want to do the scavenger. Like I want to be a part of this. This was really neat. And it also like brought you in the frame of mind of this doofy kid who was like spooked by everything. Although like his examples of why he was spooked didn't really make much sense to me. He'd be like, well, today's an unlucky day. Wishbone didn't come to my practice. And also he ran across the property that was this abandoned property. And also I somehow got signed up for a scavenger hunt. And I was like, all of those things are very clearly explicable. Like that doesn't has nothing to do with luck, dude. But I guess it makes for like a thematic backbone for the story. Yeah, I think the school storylines worked a little better when they were a little younger. <laughs> it's it's very jarring that they're so much older, but yeah. I, I do really love the set design in this. They obviously threw some budget behind this one, even in the Oakdale segment. On this hunt that they go on, at each stop, there's like a task they have to perform, and it always involves some kind of Rube Goldberg device. There's like this fancy mechanical machine gadget thing that is tied into some riddle they have to solve. And they're really cool, and yet don't call to mind Halloween for me. And I was wondering, did they build these specifically for the episode or did they just like come across them and think, oh, these things are really cool. We have to use them somehow. It's a good question. I don't know. And I wasn't sure. Because they are nifty. In a classic haunted house, but there's all these sort of gadgets, things that play together, like you said, a Rube Goldberg. Yeah, no, I was, in, I was digging it. I would be excited if I were them and I got to be a part of this. But of course... Joe's kind of mopey. He's like, oh, this is all too spooky for me. It's like, come on, dude, it's freaking Halloween and you're a high schooler. Like you should be out drinking and I don't know. Like this, this is a delight for you right here. <laughs> yeah, I could not really imagine a better Halloween than what they've got going on here. <laughs> because then when they get to the final stop, which is, of course, the scary house that Joe has been dreading. There's a bunch of mummies sitting around a table and they like put the game piece in the proper spot to activate the last booby trap and the mummies all jump up and come after them. But it turns out that it's the organizer of the scavenger hunt in disguise and he gives them the grand prize gift certificate. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say, they've got the costumes that they're wearing are overall like pretty generic as far as what the Oakdale kids have got on. Joe is like an army man and Sam, the girl is a hunter, which ties into the role she plays because she shoots like a pop gun at one of the Rube Goldberg things to solve one of the puzzles. The only character whose costume really relates to his like stereotype role in the show is David is dressed as a mad scientist because he's always the one who's got gadgets and wacky science projects. But I thought the most interesting choice was DeMont, the bully character, 
is pretty obviously dressed as Freddy Krueger. He's got a sweater and like a pinched fedora hat. But when they ask him what he is, he says, I'm your worst nightmare. Uh, I didn't piece that together, but I see that now for sure. So, nightmare on Elm Street. So that's good. You know, it's like the non copyright violating version of Freddy. Oh, yeah. It's the RC Cola Freddy Krueger. Some thoughts specifically on Wishbone's interpretation of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, they did play up Ichabod's obsession with the supernatural, all this stuff with Lucky Charms. What did you think about the the human actors in this uh, this Sleepy Hollow segment in Wishbone more broadly? I was mostly jarred by the fact that a freaking goddamn Jack Russell Terrier is Ichabod Crane in what is otherwise like a pretty straightforward period adaptation of this story. That, to me, was by far the most striking element of it. Um, otherwise, I didn't really have too much of a strong reaction to it. Um, we'll get to the, the barometer. Um, it, it definitely revealed to me that a, a couple of things. The main one being that I was like, oh, this is all just set up for the one interesting thing that happens in this story. Because they kind of condense a lot of it down into just a couple of clips. And... Um, I thought it worked fine, but it was quite condensed. And this was the first time as opposed to, because this was the second one I watched, and I actually watched this right before I listened to the story. But this is the one where I was seeing both the depiction of the kind of modern day event and the story itself and realized, oh, this is basically just a jocks versus nerds, but spooky story that we're dealing with here. What were your reactions yeah, pretty much the same. I think the strength in this one is the Oakdale segment, actually. All the cool yeah. Halloween stuff. I agree. I will say this one lands very high on the barometer. Um, we get like actually a moderately impressive depiction of the Headless Horseman himself. Like We actually get the jack-o'-lantern thrown at the camera, and I thought that was pretty cool. Like They didn't really skimp on the the depiction of it. it. It had the appropriate spook factor, like the flaming jack-o'-lantern pumpkin eyes shooting at the camera and exploding. And then what happened after that? But I would say on the barometer, it has some hints that lead you pretty strongly towards Brahm more so than even the story. Like it zooms in on the emblem on the headless horseman and then the emblem on Brahm. Yeah. So the Headless Horseman's horse has like a necklace on. It's like a horse hood ornament. It's like a little horseshoe icon thing hanging on a chain. And when the townsfolk find the pumpkin, the people who had been telling Headless Horseman stories at the party, they see uh, Ichabod's hat and the pumpkin remnants. And they say, oh, maybe this will convince Brom that the Headless Horseman is real. And Brom walks up. He says, convince me of what? And you see that his horse is wearing the same necklace. So it's like, okay, yeah, 9.9 .9 on the barometer, probably. Yeah, I was going to say 9.5. I could go 9.9, .9, though. So that's the Wishbone adaptation from 97. A couple years later, we've got a 1999 adaptation. This is Sleepy Hollow made by director Tim Burton. Because, you know, if there's a spooky, well-known story, Burton's got to touch on it at some point. <laughs> so had you had any familiarity with this version ahead of time dan i actually remember the commercials for it 
but I really didn't remember anything beyond that and kind of assumed it would be an actual adaptation going into it. But I would say it is by far the most invented and least faithful adaptation. I mean, you can, in some ways, it just pulls in some settings and names and a couple of scenarios, but like it is not really an adaptation beyond that. The story is totally different. Yeah, it's sort of like, and maybe this is not the best reference, but it's kind of like Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island or any of the other like direct-to-video Scooby-Doo movies where the monsters, spoilers, are real, where the characters go into it kind of expecting the standard Scooby-Doo setup that you're going to pull the mask off the monster and it's going to be a person underneath. But then, oh, the zombie's head comes away in your hand. And something deeper is going on here. Uh, This movie uses some of the actors who are familiar in Burton's usual stable. Obviously, first and foremost, you have Johnny Depp playing Ichabod in this one. But also, I recognize Jeffrey Jones, who pops up in a few different Tim Burton movies. He, for instance, was Criswell in Ed Wood. Oh, and he's um, the mortal dad in Beetlejuice, like the guy who moves into the haunted house. Right. And the main thing I know him from is he's the principal Rooney in Ferris Bueller. Yeah, that's his most prominent role. He's also the emperor in Amadeus. Right. Uh, Also a sex offender. (laughs) Which I did not know until I was looking at the actors for this today. I was like, oh, that's too bad. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was surprised that this that he was still in a movie as late as 99 because it was like right after sometime in the early 2000s that things went south and they uh, had to overhaul extraterrestrial alien encounter at Disney World where he was the host. Oh, interesting. But yeah, this adaptation, it's got a lot of mostly English actors who play like the old men in the town of Sleepy Hollow. But really just a lot of good actors overall. So there's a very big role for Michael Gambon, who is Dumbledore in movies three through eight, if I'm not mistaken. And you have Christopher Lee is in there. He, I mean, you know him from multiple things. I think he was Dracula for some adaptations. And of course, I met him in Lord of the Rings. Is he Sauron or Saruman? I don't know. One of those guys. Yeah, he's Saruman. I still can't believe that Tolkien did that. I think that alone should knock him down a few pegs in <laughs> literary consideration that his two bad guys are Sauron and Saruman. It's like, yeah. come up with something different, dude. Or just make him one character. Agreed. We also get Ian McDermott. He's the Emperor from Star Wars. I was like, who's that guy? Oh, wait, it's the Emperor. What's he doing here? Yeah, there's some interesting connections between this movie and Star Wars Episode One. They filmed, obviously both are 1999 movies, and they both filmed at Leavesden Studios in England. Basically, as soon as Phantom Menace pulled out of the studio, Burton rolled in with his folks. And yeah, it's both of them have the Palpatine actor. And actually, both of them have stuntman Ray Park. In Phantom Menace, he played Darth Maul, and... In Sleepy Hollow, he's the horseman any time that he doesn't have his head. Oh, interesting. Which is when he's doing most of the action-y stuff. Right. Because when he does have his head, who is he? Yeah, he's Christopher Walken. 
but with like these really creepy teeth and eyes. And he never on. talks. It's like, what do you think of Christopher Walken having? It's the distinctive weird voice. And he never says anything. He, he has three lines. And his three lines are, Bah! Nah! Rah! Those are his three different lines throughout the... It's the uh, Dagda dialect. Yeah, he, he's got the Dagda going. But that's that's still not the end of it for surprising cast. You hit most of the highlights. But... I really enjoyed Richard Griffiths, who I personally know as Uncle Vernon from the Harry Potter series, playing this guy who just so sweaty, always taking his wig off and wiping his brow. I enjoyed him. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, it took me most of the movie to figure out who that guy was. And he doesn't even make it all the way through. So it's like, no, that I recognize that dude. But who was he? And then <laughs> then I think I put it together by the end. And then the very last one I, I recognized beyond the leads was Michael Gow or Go, who plays Alfred in the old Batman movies. Oh. He's he's the last of kind of the old town guys. Gotcha. And then we also have Christina Ricci playing Katrina Van Tassel in this one. And she, of course, was Wednesday Adams in the theatrical Adams Family movies in the 90s. I, I always find her to be quite appealing and magnetic on screen. So she's eight years older than me, approximately. And so she was always like the right amount older than me for me to always have like a, she was the older girl that I had a crush on when I was a kid, whatever movie I was watching. So I've always had a soft spot for her. And I had never obviously seen this one. I, I thought she was pretty, pretty good in here. Although I've read that she's been critical of this role for lacking depth in in the time since yeah katrina tends not to be a very deep role at least we don't get to like see into her head much usually right also she was 17 years younger than johnny depp which is not the biggest hollywood age gap but it is noticeable depp looks young though in general like that's true there's certainly some age gap but um i think that is certainly impacted by the fact that depp looks young and was cast as characters who seem younger than he actually was right and this movie gets the usual burton treatment in that things look super expressionistic it's like dr caligari in color get kind of like the town looks like a spooky pop-up book very stark lots of interesting angles it reminded me a lot of the way the cityscapes look in sweeney todd okay and it just kind of the, the whole look of things reminded me of Sweeney Todd, which he would make a few years later in the 2000s. No singing here, though. But ev everything is, like, black-tinted. A lot, a lot of darkness. One thing... I wanted to see a little more color. I don't know. I, I'm used to there being that first act of the Sleepy Hollow story where there's all the focus on the leaves being orange and red and all the pumpkins and delicious food... But here it's just very grim all throughout. Yeah, very desaturated with moments of like the blood red spurting out. I think the accent of the red on everything else is important. I actually thought this movie looked amazing overall. I can see what you're saying about wanting more color. But I, I think the cinematography overall, the way that it uses light and shadows and color and contrast between black and white and dark and light, the splashes of color here and there. 
in addition to like all the amazing and by the way academy award winning production design just amazing sets and like this one freaky tree and buildings that are compelling i just think the movie looks really really cool and that kind of holds the movie together more so than a plot that is a little bit of a clusterfuck from my perspective yeah now that you mention it the red is really striking this is like the reddest blood i've ever seen and there is quite a bit of it yeah but the big gimmick here the the jumping off point that immediately is going to set it apart from other adaptations is that Ichabod is not a school teacher from Connecticut. He is a detective from New York City. He's a cop. He's an NCIS cop. Yeah. And so the setting in terms of time is still the same. It's, you know, 1799. Actually, now that I think about it, he's not really an NCIS cop. He's more of like an X-Files cop. Someone who comes in because they heard this one mysterious thing might be happening. Comes into town... What's the monster of the week going to be? Well, the monster of the week is going to be this Hessian soldier who somebody is manipulating. Yes. So a couple things to add to that. All these other adaptations and the original story were told that Ichabod is very superstitious. But in this one, they make it clear from the beginning that he's the only one who believes in logic. He believes in forensic science, which this is like still the days when they think that Flies are born in rancid meat, and if you leave food out, it'll give birth to rats and stuff. You know, it's it's before everybody's on board that everything has a scientific explanation. Like, the Enlightenment is still a new idea. And so Ichabod's superiors at the start of the movie say, Oh, well, if you think you're such hot stuff using your science to solve cases, how about you go to Sleepy Hollow and solve this case where somebody has been decapitating townsfolk, and they say it's a kooky spooky ghost. And so he gets sent up there and says, yes, I will use my deduction. Uh, They don't call him a detective. They call him a deductor, (laughs) which I, I like. I didn't catch that, but that's good. I actually like this character trait for Ichabod, because if you're going to play him up as the rational, intellectual one, Having him be a skeptic rather than having him be someone who's buying into every wild supernatural theory makes more sense to me. So I kind of liked this element of him, but it all also gets tied up with he has this really complicated and messy past that, that comes out and this whole supernatural thing kind of unwinds. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I didn't really follow all of that. We get some flashes to his childhood where he's played by a a child actor. I don't know. The the kid looks really androgynous. And this was something that was in the Tim Burton Willy Wonka movie. Did you ever see that one? No, I didn't know if he... Where it adds a backstory about his childhood. And I wondered wondered if it was the same actor because this kid looks like exactly the same as the one in that one. So I, I don't know if this is what Johnny Depp actually looked like as a kid. Uh, or who picked what a child version of Johnny Depp's characters would look like. It's just interesting. Mm-hmm. Anytime where you've got a child actor who their main role is to like stand there staring at things, I'm generally not a big fan. <laughs> and all these flashbacks are like the kid staring at, I guess his mom was like a witch or something. I, I didn't really follow. Or she like studied things that 
the other townsfolk didn't think she should be studying and so they persecuted her or i i wasn't really sure about that uh, a lot of this plot itself is not really grounded and doesn't really connect the same way the visuals do i think the extent of the background story is like he had this conflicting parentage where his mom was freaky deaky spiritual witchy and his dad was like very rational why they ever got married i don't know but apparently the i think the dad killed the mom or something like that so like his whole personal trauma is tied with the relationship between the supernatural and the intellectual sure but anyway adult ichabod is in sleepy hollow now and we meet the usual retinue of villagers pretty much as soon as he walks in the door Ichabod gets kissed by Katrina because she's playing some weird, like, combination of spin the bottle and blind man's bluff. And and Brom obviously is irked by this. Brom's surprisingly non-crucial to this story. I mean, a very major deviation beyond even having Supernatural. Brom, like, it seems like he's going to be an important guy. And then the Headless Horseman comes out. He's like, I'm going to fight him. And then the Headless Horseman just literally guts him in half. He cuts him in half. <laughs> we get we get a bit where Brom does prank Ichabod and he chases him down in the Headless Horseman costume. And then we actually see him take the costume off. So it's like, oh, it was Brom. And <laughs> he turns around and he's halved. <laughs> Cut straight in the, the gut. Yeah. I'm halved. I'm cutting half real bad. To quote the brother from Walk Hard. I haven't even seen that movie, but I've heard you quote that enough that I, I was able to identify it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even before that happens, all the villagers are pretty convinced that we're dealing with a real ghostly headless horseman. And Ichabod says, I don't know about that. I'm skeptical. And then, yeah, Brahms in half all of a sudden. It's really weird. I think if they had framed this a little differently, it might have had a little more impact. But Johnny Depp comes in. He's like, oh, so first of all, we see the head, the literal headless horseman, fairly unambiguously headless and spooky. And then Johnny Depp's like, well, I don't think it's really supernatural. And he kind of maintains that for like the first half of the movie. But it, literally when he arrives, everybody's like, oh, yeah, there's a real headless horseman. I know you don't think it's real, but it's real and it's killing people. And then we like see it multiple times killing people. And so it's like never really in doubt that this is supernatural. So I feel like the impact that there is, in fact, a supernatural thing is diminished by the framing that we get. So like I never really was like, oh, maybe Johnny Depp's right. Maybe it's a Scooby-Doo situation all along and there's not actually a supernatural thing because the movie doesn't really invest any effort in having you feel that. I mean, I was still wondering if it could be somebody in a costume for a while I wasn't sure what they were going to do with it. But yeah, pretty early on, Johnny Depp follows the horseman back to where he comes from. And it turns out that he spends most of his time down in his grave underneath a spooky tree. And Ichabod cuts into the tree and it just sprays blood everywhere. And then vomits up a big wall of severed heads. <laughs> I mean, it's basically what happens. 
all the severed heads that had, hap- that had been decapitated so far, because that's the thing, whenever somebody had died, they'd been decapitated, but their head disappeared. Turns out this dude is a, a head collector. He rolls them like marbles into his little uh, tree. Yeah, he's like a squirrel storing acorns. Exactly. But if you pick at the right spot, turns out they all come rolling out to you. And there's this about seven times some version of a gag or a moment where there is a decapitated head rolling and the creepy eyes from the head stare at you. Another thing that happens multiple times is Johnny Depp gets covered with blood. Yes. And it's kind of drawn out. It'll be like he'll get a little bit on his face and then he'll kind of roll his eyes. He does this reaction that I think Johnny Depp does in a lot of different movies where it's just something gross happens. You get a reaction shot cut to his face where he's like, yeah, he's good at that face. He realizes that he's got to persist and then he just ends up completely saturated with blood. And, And while they're digging around in this pile of heads, the... Completely unambiguous, 100% ghostly ghost explodes out of the ground and goes thundering off again to go collect another head. But Ichabod determines that he can still apply detective work in this case because now he knows that the Headless Horseman is only killing specific people, so he must be being controlled by somebody. Somebody who's got a grudge against person X, Y, and Z. And so this is sort of twisty, turny, noir-ish. We get a couple of red herrings, a couple people who get suspicion thrown on them. Uh, initially, he thinks that it's the doing of Baltus Van Tassel, Katrina's dad, because everybody who's been killed has been somebody who stood in the way of his estate expanding. But then, not too long after he suspects Baltus, there's this confrontation where like all the old dudes that we met earlier who we thought were conspirators kind of all end up offing each other and the horseman comes up and kills Baltus. So it's like, well, okay, it wasn't him. For a minute, we think maybe it was Katrina because, I mean, you know, she's played by Wednesday Adams and Tim Burton loves to have a witch girl in his movies, like a Lydia Dietz type Somebody who is odd and, what does she say? I myself am odd and unusual. That sort of thing. We K- Katrina is like casting summoning circles and stuff, doing various witchy things. And so maybe she's in control. But also, like, why would she kill her dad? It twists and turns pretty quickly for you to think too much about it. Because who we find out that it was was her stepmother, who apparently had beef with the Van Tassels because they, like forced her poor family off its land as they were building up their big estate. And so she dedicated her life to, she was going to worm her way into the Van Tassel family and then take it all over by controlling the headless horseman. And it's convoluted. Yeah. It it didn't really connect for me. It was like, Oh, it had to be someone. And it ended up being someone that I didn't really have much of a reaction to it being that person. But it's also, it's like weirdly hinted at like 15 minutes beforehand where she's like disappears and has a weird thing happen to her. And then later she's like, don't worry about that. And then 15 minutes later, oh, wait, you should have worried about that because I'm actually a witch. (laughs) But we get a big fight in a windmill a la the finale of Frankenstein. 
And eventually Johnny Depp gets the horseman's skull away from Lady Van Tassel, the stepmother, and gives it back to the horseman, who morphs back into Christopher Walken and (laughs) scoops Lady Van Tassel up on his horse and dives back down into his grave with her. And the reveal of Christopher Walken is like great 1990. It's a like legitimately good 1999 CGI of his face being reconstructed from bone and then muscle and then skin and then creepy Christopher Walken features. Yeah, I liked it. It was spooky. And then Ichabod and Katrina moved to New York City. Yeah. And they sort of adopt this 12 year old who was hanging around helping out Johnny Depp. Yep. So again, it reminded me a little bit of Sweeney Todd, because in that one, it's Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter and a kid. But now it's uh, Johnny Depp and Christina Ricci and a kid in a Victorian city that's very expressionistic and dark. Mm -hmm. But there's no musical numbers, unfortunately. I kept expecting him to break out in song like in uh, Sweeney Todd, but he never does. So some quick rapid fire thoughts on this adaptation, Dan. What do you got? I've hit most of them. Love the visuals. The story and the characterization is all over the place. Or sorry, the cast is quite strong. Lots of great people appear. Great, great actors have have, have compelling bits. Uh, Depp himself seems to mimic the fact that the story doesn't know what it wants to be. Like sometimes it's a conspiracy thriller. Sometimes it's a slasher with blood spurting. Sometimes it's a detective story. Sometimes it's a ghost story. Sometimes it's a monster story with this thing climbing around. And similarly, Johnny Depp is like, is he a geek? Is he a detective, a suave cop? Is he like a film noir messed up cop who has his own troubles? Is he like a romantic hero? And all these things kind of butt heads with each other. And I didn't really have much of a read on what Johnny Depp was trying to do other than just being this big, like almost sort of whimsical presence as the hero of this horror story. It's enough to like be a core for the story, but not enough for me to really know exactly what he was doing with it. So uh, for me overall, it was a little bit of a mixed bag, but I think ultimately held to get together as enjoyable. I think hero is the key word here. He's a lot more heroic than Ichabod tends to be in other adaptations. There's much less of the self-serving. I don't think he thinks at all about, oh, if I get with Katrina, I'll have access to this big estate. That's never really his driving factor. That's true. It's basically a completely different story. That element is discarded. (laughs) Also, I think it's pretty funny that when Brom gets cut in half, In the aftermath, Johnny Depp is like, oh, man, I'm sorry your boyfriend got cut in half. And she's like, oh, I've grieved for Braum already. I'm done. I I don't think about him anymore. Yeah. Like, oh, (laughs) wow. I'm feeling kind of bad for Braum in this one. (laughs) Sorry for getting halved, bro. But also the girl that you were pining for, she's over it. (laughs) So those were the variations, the adaptations that I initially assigned, what I've termed in shorthand Disney, Wishbone, and Burton. But as I was tracking them down, you know, I googled or searched on the various streaming services for Sleepy Hollow, 
I think specifically into Tubi, I typed Sleepy Hollow 99. And what that turned up, though, was not Tim Burton's film from 1999, but a Hallmark television movie that I love Sleepy Hollow. So I watched it on a whim (laughs) and kind of pushed, you know, heavily nudged Dan into watching it, too. And did you ultimately watch this one? I did. I caught up with this one as well. Called The Legend of Sleepy Hollow from 1999. Not to be confused with Sleepy Hollow 1999. Oh, and before we dissect this one, Brometer for Burton. What do you say? I mean, uh, one. Yeah, we do see, I mean, we literally see the scene of him putting on the costume and hitting Ichabod with the pumpkin. So that's why you can't call it a zero. That's true. But there's a real monster. Yeah. When a headless horseman literally splits Brom in half on screen, and it's not Brom. I think we can safely say that Brom is not the Headless Horseman. Right. Okay. So, Hallmark, Sleepy Hollow, from 1999 also. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have even addressed this one, but it turned out to be super interesting. Maybe that's overselling it. I had just never seen one that went this in-depth with recreating the story before. Yeah, after seeing all the previous ones, particularly in contrast to the very like schlocky horror elements of the Johnny Depp, Tim Burton one, this one was, I guess you could say, a breath of fresh air. It was certainly, considering my headspace was with the story itself, very interesting. And I agree it was compelling and intriguing in its own way compared to any of the others of really leaning into taking specifics of the story and teasing it out and fleshing out character relationship dynamics more so than adding like other horish stuff, adding something that wasn't the, the Washington Irving story itself. It was more focused on that actual short story. Yeah. And it pulls in so many things from the story. I mean, it even includes the framing device of this historian, Diedrich Knickerbocker sitting in a tavern and talking to these old folks who can still remember the revolution 50 years out. And, oh, tell me about the things you've experienced or the the legends that you've heard. And so they start regaling him with the Sleepy Hollow story. This was the adaptation that leaned most heavily into Ichabod being an asshole territory. I thought it really played up him being slimy. Like, to the point that any position of influence that he has earned in the town is gotten through false pretense. Like it goes through the trouble of showing how he gets his choir master job. And he like walks up to the pastor and says, Hey, I see you don't have anybody teaching the choir. Can I teach the choir? And the pastor is like, uh, and Ichabod says, Oh, great. I can take the job. And then he's turns around and is immediately telling people I'm the choir master now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, deceitfulness is certainly part of it, but also just like being an awkward goober who inserts himself into everything and doesn't take no for an easy answer. And like letting that drive his perception of the world. It's very self-centered at least. Right. It's it's almost like an unreliable narrator thing, although it's not Ichabod who tells the short story. But it's like any crumb that we get from Irving that could be read different ways is read the negative way for the portrayal of Ichabod in this one. Yeah, like making him very 
self-centered and like manipulating the things around him to make him seem heroic and him to seem just kind of an unlikable outsider, not the hero that we would want to be and want to identify with. Right. Also, they made Brom super dreamy in this one. <laughs> He's like hotter and younger than we've seen. It, it, he he looks the same age as Katrina, which may not have even been the norm back in, you know, the late 1700s. Like the dude being older may have been normal. It also makes very clear that Katrina and Brom have a history. Yeah. And that they are like circling around each other even when Ichabod's in the picture. Yeah, they have a previous relationship and it's only once they're on a break that the cloud of suitors from the story descends. We get way more interiority with both Katrina and Brom in this one than we ever get in the other ones. The way they set it up is like Katrina wants to experience civilization. Rather than being in this new world, she wants to like see Amsterdam and the great cities of Europe. Whereas Brahm is more into, oh, we have this great frontier in America. We need to head out and explore it and make our own way. And I don't just want your father's money. And so, I don't know, there's like a little seed that maybe she would find Ichabod appealing because he represents culture. Mm -hmm. But that never really seems convincing. Like what really seems to be driving her is she just wants Brahm to take her seriously and I guess she's miffed that he is ignoring her wants. Right. I like this proto-feminist angle for Katrina, where she wants to have say in her future. And that's the thing that drives something between her and Brahm. And so like that's what's important to her. But then it sets up Ichabod to kind of be this, hey, I'm the one who will let you live your dream. But that ends up being just like very soured and very fake. At the end, I, th I think you're going to get to this when we actually see more of his interactions with Katrina, including a pivotal one. It kind of ends up revolving around that. Right. Because not only do we get more business seeing the personalities of Katrina and Brom, we also have developments, character developments of Katrina's parents. We've got... Her mom, who is kind of like a ditzy housewife and is really won over by Ichabod's flattery and all his, like, frou-frou, all his affectations. And so she's kind of encouraging Ichabod's courtship of Katrina, whereas her dad keeps pulling Brahm aside and encouraging Brahm. Oh, you just gotta wait. You know, this is just a passing thing for Katrina. Just stay the course, dude, and you'll have an in at some point. Baltus, the dad, sets up a trap for Ichabod, where he gets Ichabod to admit that what he really, really wants to do is inherit this farm. Hmm, yeah. And he sets it up so that Katrina overhears this. So yeah, after the party, this is the only adaptation to actually show in detail that scene that we never get that... I had honestly missed the first time I even read the short story where Ichabod comes to her afterwards and pops the question. <laughs> and here, again, they just make Ichabod look as bad as possible because he's also a sloppy drunk here. He like falls over a fence. <laughs> and then 
She's like, well, hold on, but you just said all of these things about me. And he's like, uh, did I? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, because, you know, she heard what he said ostensibly behind closed doors. Right. And so she sends him on his way. And then with how slavishly devoted it's been to Irving's story, the ending was super weird. Because we get the chase through the woods, and what happens, Dan? So, yeah, it is It is odd. At first, it's set up like the ones that we know, where he's kind of nervously going through the woods. He's downtrodden. And here we have a good sense of why he is downtrodden, because he's dr- drunk, and he's just been heartbroken and dejected and trying to get back home, but also has in his head these spooky stories and so all this stuff is happening around him and he's just in a weird psychotic state. So the, the headless horseman appears and comes after him. Like there's a weird thing where the headless horseman is chasing him down. And normally the headless horseman is the epitome of spooky grace and expert ridesmanship or whatever you call it, the skill of riding the horse. But here he bumps into a tree, the headless horseman does. Which, you know, honestly, if you had a costume on covering up your face and you're trying to ride a horse, it wouldn't be too easy. Yeah. And then Ichabod goes and looks and, hey, hold on. It's Brom. Brom meter. We're at a 10.0. We're seeing it happen. Here's Brom. Ichabod even has a kind of funny triumphant line because he picks up the pumpkin. He says, oh, is this your head? It must be. It's full of mush. So, you know, we we see a version where maybe Ichabod wins in this one all of a sudden. And I was like, oh, this is playing it as straight as can be. And then like a jump scare, but even just like a what the hell is going on moment. There's another Headless Horseman. There's two. There's a real head. I think it's supposed to be a real spooky, supernatural Headless Horseman appearing. And this one like attacks Ichabod. And this is where we get the ambiguous what happened to Ichabod where'd he go I don't know because he got spooked away by this spooky spook thing yeah I don't know it was just very unexpected in how it like leaned into the Brahm being the headless horseman but also having uh, otherwise having a headless horseman who I don't know if there's any way to read it except it is actually a supernatural headless horseman hessian undead dude running around throwing I guess, jack-o'-lanterns at goobers. Yeah, so, I mean, they really wanted to give us everything from the story. Everything that you could take away from the story is presented here. Yeah. It's, like, conclusively both ways. We even get the scene where the townsfolk divvy up Ichabod's possessions and, like, burn his effects that they don't want. Yeah. Which is mentioned for, like, half a sentence in the short story. Right. It's like, he didn't owe anybody money. Uh, And so we burned his papers. Then it jumps back to the frame story tavern and the old timers start telling Knickerbocker another story. And I was really hoping it was going to be Rip Van Winkle. But no, it's just like some other story that nobody remembers from the book. Oh, yeah. Interesting. That would have been a fun twist ending. I like that. And so that was our surprise bonus that, I mean, we didn't tell you ahead of time what we were going to be covering. Um, But for us... I I found it interesting, and it just kind of was on a whim that I watched it, so I'm glad you did too. Well, there we go. Four adaptations. That's right. So, 
I am in a place where I would like to um, give some ratings for these and, and some reasonings why. What about you? Let's go for it. All right. So you, Dan, are our guest. You were a neophyte. You came from outside into this community of Sleepy Hollow. And what do you make of it? Well, overall, I had a good time. I, I'm not going to throw a rating on the short story, I guess. I, I don't know if one could rate the short story itself. But I thought it was very compelling. And I was glad that I listened to it and glad that I got that piece of kind of historical American literature. So for the Disney adaptation, the animated one that makes up half of Ichabod and Mr. Toad or whatever it's called, um, this one for me is squarely a five. It is well animated. It is charming. I can kind of see why it became iconic, but I was off put enough by the weird tonal shifts of having the crooner singing a song, then slapstick, and then like five minutes of intense horror for me to rate it much higher. The last five minutes are really amazing, but the whole package overall is just solidly good. Okay. What about you, Brian? Yeah, so the different versions that we watched, for me, they're all going to sound similar in rating, but I arrived at the scores for different reasons. So... The Disney version for me from 1949 gets a 6 out of 8 on our scale, a very good. I think it stands the test of time and does a really good job of telling a concise yet pretty accurate account of the short story. Like, there's not a lot of invention here and there's not too much left on the cutting room floor unless you're a huge Hans von Ripper fan. Because, of course, the Hallmark version had like whole subplots devoted to Hans von Ripper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was pretty prominent. Right. And he's not in the Disney version. But you're right that there's some weird tone shifts, a couple songs that I didn't care for and don't really remember. Although I think the Headless Horseman song adds a lot of life to the party scene. Yeah, I like the party scene. One thing that I mentioned to you, I don't know if we've mentioned on air here, is that the main dance song, which goes on for several minutes, is a tune that I knew growing up because my parents were big Notre Dame football fans. And it's like a tune that the marching band plays before Notre Dame football games that I had never heard anywhere else. It just so happens to be the dance song. The song is called Rakes of Mallow in the Notre Dame marching band album online on Spotify. I don't actually know the origin of this song, but I thought it was, it was surprising and cool for it to pop up in the, the party scene here. I also thought it was interesting having Bing Crosby as the sole voice playing both Brahm and Ichabod, but it also feels limited. It kind of adds on to the feeling that the whole project was constrained in terms of time and budget to deliver it. Shifting to Wishbone, for me, this was... In the realm of a high three or a low four, I opened it back up and I clicked through it again and I was smiling at the images of it enough that I'll give it just kind of out of affection for nostalgia and what it does. We'll call it a low four for the Wishbone episode. You know, it. I think the adaptation itself is the least interesting adaptation. It only gets, it, it's shorter than the rest and it doesn't really 
add much that the other adaptations don't examine in a more interesting way with the exception of like maximizing the barometer of making us know that this is Brahm who's responsible for it. But what really makes Wishbone shine a little bit more for me is just the warm, nostalgic suburban Halloween story that accompanies it. We get another rendition of the, am I too old to trick or treat story, or at least a minor version of it that we have seen at least in gravity falls. And I've seen in other movies and TV shows plenty of times before get cool pumpkin sweatshirts and turtlenecks and costumes. And that triggered enough nostalgia for me to feel like, okay, this is a good way to spend one's time. It's enough to barely earn a goodish four out of eight on our, is it good scale? I also gave this one a six, a very <laughs> good. And I almost wanted to go to seven. I'm openly acknowledging my nostalgia and personal bias, but I think the Wishbone series as a whole is a stellar delivery on a pretty odd concept. I think if you just drop the log line of a dog telling and acting in great works of literature, it sounds weird. But if you watch it, I think it works. In this episode specifically, I like that they devoted so much time and budget to a short story. <laughs> really highlights that they could have spent more time on some of the other books that they covered. And I love the Rube Goldberg devices. And the the story that's the real highlight here is the Oakdale one with all the cool colors and production design that happens there. Yeah, I agree. So I agree that as a Sleepy Hollow adaptation, it's lower in my estimation. But I, I like what the suburban story brings to bear. As for Tim Burton's 1999 adaptation, I think there's no doubt that this is the most of an actual film among what we watched in terms of production budget and cinematic ambitions, storytelling ambitions. And I, I think I quite enjoyed it overall. I think it, it miraculously kind of held together despite its story being a total batshit all over the place, could barely follow, could barely comprehend all of it. Not necessarily a nightmare. It, it's not a fiasco. I would say it's, it's, one step above fiasco. It's just a lot of stuff going on and not an identity crisis, perhaps. That said, I really love the visuals on this. I love the look. If I were blasting any of these on a big screen again, it would absolutely be Sleepy Hollow, no doubt. And I can see why some people consider this like a destination viewing for each autumn. It's it's something you got to get on your screen and have people over and see. Because there is a certain visual autumnal horror magic to it. And it's got a little bit of everything for you. It's got splattery guts and ghosts and monsters and spookiness and it's fun. So the question for me, is it a high five or is it a pity six? And I couldn't quite convince myself that it was a six out of eight. Very good. I'm going to land on a high good, almost a very good for me. But I was just detached enough from the characters and the script that I couldn't quite buy in beyond a good. High five. No, I'm I'm giving this one a four out of eight, a good-ish. I was really glad that among the selections, we did have a real horseman story. One where he's totally a ghost. Uh, I wasn't sure going in that that's how it would turn out, but it made me happy. Uh, my overall impression of this movie is that Burton was having fun with his friends. 
he's got Johnny Depp in a starring role. He's got a few other familiar faces hanging out while getting to wear kind of expressionistic costumes and hang out in this cool setting. I do like the production design. It's just too dark for me. I, I want some more colors in a Sleepy Hollow story. Also, the, the kind of noiry, twisty-turny mystery plot didn't do much for me. I didn't really care so much once the ultimate culprit was revealed. And it kind of comes off to me as feeling like a slightly more lackluster Sweeney Todd. It was like the seed of what Sweeney Todd would be. And I really like Sweeney Todd, so that biases me too uh, towards the negative. <laughs> there's no singing, no Sasha Baron Cohen, but some good things here. Quickly, I want to insert that I gave the original short story a 7 out of 8, an exceptionally good, because it just stands the test of time so well, despite being so old. I've, I said, and I still say, that the humor feels surprisingly modern to me. I guess that's timeless. And it gives a pretty complex depiction of Ichabod. There's a couple different ways you can read him, as we've seen in these derivative works. I suppose if I were to rate the short story, the number that pops to my head is a very good, a six out of eight. So we can we can pencil that in as our, if you want to call it our uh, selection, our earliest selection ever in like, what was it, 1828 or something like that? I forget. Yeah, 1820. But I, I agree with, with all of that analysis as well. And that brings us to our, our final item, which is the other 1999 Sleepy Hollow, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, a Hallmark production, as you, as you pointed out, the one that is a TV movie that hewed most closely to the story overall among the selections that we had. This one for me, it was very masterpiece theater-ish in the sense that like, the production values were not noticeably bad, but also very noticeably TV movie. And it leaned a lot on having a script that didn't require a lot of production values for most of it. Although it does obviously have the headless horseman component and it has at least a little bit of budget behind it. It wasn't the most impressive of them, but it was at least a little bit of uh, spooky fun at the end. And I think I can see why if you were coming at it from an outside angle, you might think it's kind of a boring and slow compared to other Sleepy Hollows. But that's actually something I liked about it. I like that it dedicated itself to the story and really pulled stuff out and differentiated itself that way and had a really interesting angle on Ichabod. On the other hand, I kind of wished I liked Ichabod a little bit more. So I don't know. I can see the ups and downs of that. Like it was kind of hard for me to really get engaged and be rooting for him on that angle. There was like really nobody that I was rooting for by the end of this story, except I guess Katrina herself. So um, for me, it being a, a well-made TV movie that, that gave me quite a bit to think about, I'm going to give it uh lowish to solidish four out of eight good ish. It was a nice way to spend an hour and a half, but I don't think I could quite call it a good movie. I enjoyed it, but that that's as far as I'll go. What about you, Brian? So I was ready to give this one another six. Um, I think this one gets my high five. I was really struck by how distinct this one was for something that I just threw on last minute. It's like by far the most accurate and thorough adaptation I've ever seen. I mean, it's got the frame story. It's got Ichabod's landlord 
it even has there's part in the story where there's like a line mention that he tells people that the world spins like a top it's like one of his science things that he tells people oh the world is round and it spins and sometimes we're upside down and it actually has him in the movie making taking having that conversation Nice, yeah. It was like, I, I was not expecting to see this. <laughs> so just as a Sleepy Hollow aficionado, I got to give this one big props. Yeah. Uh, but you're right that it really leans into making Ichabod a jerk. <laughs> like, he is not likable at all. Any way that they could make him look bad, they did make him look bad. So I think I needed to see this version because it does conclusively shatter, like, any positive feelings that I have toward Ichabod as a character. Uh, which those feelings have been eroding for a while, but I think it's good that this version exists. Although I think it's good that the other ones exist too. I don't know that this will become my definitive version, so I, I think it is a, a five, a good. Well, there we go. It was it was an interesting set of movies, and thank you for sharing them for me, Brian. Oh yeah, thanks for sharing the banquet with me. Yeah, and I, I like when we we take some classical story and and investigate a variety of adaptations of it so i'm hoping we can do that again in the future at some point but what have you got coming up for us next in spooky season i am going to ask us to watch the 1996 slasher there's an element of satire to it i think uh, movie scream which i've never seen and i understand you have not seen as well brian is that correct that's also right as you'll come to see when we tackle it next week, there's a lot of horror movies I haven't seen, and this is one of them. But we'll be continuing the theme of wondering who is the killer in the costume. <laughs> That's true. There is an iconic mask in Scream. The reason I'm specifically picking this one is I follow the alternate ending website and podcast and one of the writers and hosts is named Brennan Klein, and he made a list. Actually, at my request, I, I reached out to him and said, if I wanted to watch Slashers, where would I get started? And he made a list of them, and he said he personally started with Scream. He thinks it's a great entry point to Slashers. It's one I've never seen, so I will take him up on that. And I uh, am looking forward to discussing that with you further, Brian. Well, I'm excited. Now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of any of the Sleepy Hollow adaptations or any film we've previously discussed. Each week we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast, and if we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. We don't have any to read this week. We didn't get any submissions, but I talked to a couple people who said they have some thoughts on things we've said that they'd like to submit at some point. So I think we will have something to read at some point. We've had one in the past and, and hopefully more to come. But And I hope you join us again next time for Spooky Month. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. All right, goodbye, everyone.